Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Muslim Vibe podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dustin Cron, who is a creative strategist and community organizer based here in California. And Dustin has basically a very vast experience of uh, starting from academia right through to digital content publication and stuff. And he's, he's essentially worked with so many different organizations and Muslim artists and uh, producers and creators. Uh, so I thought it'd be a really good time to organize a podcast with him to talk about the creative space for Muslims and also the emergence of NFTs, blockchain, crypto, all of that stuff and how that kind of corresponds with Muslim artists and Muslim creatives. So we kind of have a deep dive discussion about what NFTs are, what their value is, all of that kind of more technical kind of side of things and then we discuss what the future looks like for muslims in the nft space um, and we also look at some examples of muslims that are currently doing amazing work in the nft space uh, so yeah it's just a really kind of mind-opening conversation um, as mentioned in my previous podcast guys we are going to be talking a lot more about metaverse nfts blockchain cryptocurrency all of this kind of stuff because it is that important and uh, we want to kind of make sure that the Muslim community is benefiting from uh, being aware and understanding how these things work and how they can potentially be uh, solutions but also challenges for us in the future and how we can as a community collectively work to make the most of this new opportunity. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Dustin Kron. Assalamu alaikum, Dustin. How are you? Wa alaikum salam. Alhamdulillah. Great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to have you on. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. I'm really, you know, long-term, long-time fan of the Muslim vibe. I think we featured you in our one of our global Muslim startup lists way back in the day, maybe uh, 2016, 2017 era. That's right. I, I remember that. I remember that vividly. Um, so do you want to just tell us a little bit, because you just mentioned the list as well. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the Center for Global Muslim Life? Sure. So, I mean, this is all work that I've been doing for a long time, really around narrative change, changing the story around Muslims and telling social impact stories about Muslims around the world. Um, and so I've done that with my work, you know, founding Empower Change with Linda Sarsour through the work we used to do with Omawide, which was my first uh, company. And now that work has shifted to the Center for Global Muslim Life, which is a nonprofit based here in California. I'm in Southern, I'm in Southern California. And with that, we, you know, we continued a lot of the work that we were doing with Omawide, but we also have expanded the work, um, ranging from the work we do here at the U.S.-Mexico border, which we call the Border Mosque, to the what was the 50 global Muslim startup list has turned into the 100 global Muslim startup list that we're publishing for the first time in uh, four years today, uh, this week, inshallah. Um, and then also we have a global Muslim impact forum. We have a, a global Muslim film festival. And, that, and why we use, why do I use the term global so much, right? Because I, I converted to Islam in Colorado in 2002. And so I, my entire time as a Muslim has been in the context of this war on terror, where, you know, a lot of the goal of the war on terror has been to police our identities, get us to be American Muslims, British Muslims, Australian Muslims, Malaysian Muslims, etc., and not talk about the Ummah, not talk about our solidarity as global Muslims around the, mm. around the world. And actually, you know, if you think about it, most of humanity doesn't think about the world. 
And so to have a community that's told in our Holy Scripture that we are protectors of the earth and humankind, we're leaders to humanity, to tell us that we can't talk about who we are globally, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's one of our gifts that the Muslims are given. Uh, and so, alhamdulillah, and I've lived into that, right? With my, I've lived all over the world uh, with, within Muslim communities. One of the, the things that strikes me about yourself as an individual, but also like the organizations and stuff that you've been uh, part of, um, there seems to be a lot of focus on like Muslim creatives, right? Like creating content, films, uh, production, and so on and so forth. Um, do you mind like sharing with our viewers like a little bit of background as to like why that's like a, like, a, you know, a soft spot for you, why that's something you care about so much? Sure. Well, I started really in academia and uh, I was going deep down the, the rabbit hole, so to say, of, of intellectual Islam and Sufism and traditionalism and living in Berkeley, California, studying at Zaytuna College, hanging out with, while also hanging out with all these professors of decoloniality like Ramon Grosfugel and Louis Gordon and, you know, Enrique Dussel and the great masters of, I'm studying with the, you know, some masters of Islam while, and, and, and Sufism while also studying with the masters of decoloniality. And so I worked on this paper for many years, and you can find it online called uh, Decolonizing the Heart. And it's a very dense, and I, I read it now and I'm like, I don't even believe I wrote that. I can barely read it myself now, right? And so after years of research and then getting the thing published in an academic journal, alhamdulillah, it was a great honor to do that. But I just, I had a realization that I, I wanted to speak to more people than the couple thousand that might read that article, right? And so that's really where I personally got interested in the idea of publishing and creating more popular forms of media, uh, filmmaking. And I've always, I've always been into film, but I think filmmaking was, is one of those things for most people where you don't think that it's accessible. You don't think that it's possible, but then if you're a writer and really that's where I came out of was being a writer and a community organizer. That was always the way I made money, the way I, the way I worked, the, the type of work I was involved in. If you're a writer, you can learn how to write different ways. You can learn how to write like an academic. You can learn how to write a script. And so that was the big thing for me as a writer is just learning how to write for different audiences and learning how to write different ways. One of the, the things that like, I guess we wanted to discuss um, was the future for Muslim creatives. Because uh, me and you are part of like a Discord server group chat thing, um, specifically around like Muslims in the metaverse. And in previous episodes, I've discussed with guests about the future of um, the metaverse and, and what that means for Muslims and stuff. Um, based on your kind of experience, obviously doing global Muslim life, uh, glo global Muslim life, and you know, like interacting with Muslim cre creatives across the US, but also around the world. How do you see the recent kind of like shift, let's say, towards this metaverse and NFT-based reality? I had to I had to light some oud for for this conversation. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a rustling noise. Yeah. If anyone heard it, yeah, that was. And now there's smoke. Yeah, now there's coming smoke. out of the it's, the screen. It's the halal smoke, friends. It's the halal smoke. Don't worry. We are we are we are in Southern California, but it's the halal kind of smoke. Anyway, yeah, no, that it's deep, man. I think I've got I've gone off a bit of a deep end with the nft thing and i think i think a big part of it is actually separating um 
like cryptocurrency. You, there's there's layers, right? There's blockchain, yeah, and what blockchain is as a technology and as a technology that we know is going to be a foundational piece of technology moving forward. Then there's cryptocurrency, which I think is still up in the air, right? I think it's undecided because there's so much power involved with creating currency and the powers that be have never allowed global governments and to create their own currency, right? Gaddafi was murdered for a reason when he tried to create a currency in Africa, right? The, and not just Gaddafi, but the African Union had been trying, had been talking about its own currency for a, a very long time. Has it ever manifested? No. And so will a currency be allowed to be put in place that could, that could potentially move the dollar off of its pedestal? They don't even want the they don't even want the renminbi or any of these other currencies the you know to to take the place of the dollar. So why would they want crypto to do that? And then there's NFTs, right? And so I actually think right now, if if people were so bullish on crypto in 2021, and then now we're seeing you know huge course correction, and part of that being investors and governments and other things um, tinkering with it and making sure that that price doesn't get close to $100,000 where things would really go crazy and re- and could really move some of the global currency pieces, you have to separate NFTs from that. And so NFTs being like kind of a the future of contracts, A, right? The I, And I think like I've heard people explain like watches is a really good case study, right? That there's a lot of forgery in, in watches. They're a very expensive thing. How simple is it to create an NFT? for every watch to make sure that the thing is actually real, right? And that that NFT is, is tied. There's a way that you tell how that NFT is tied to that specific watch. So there's there's real li- tons of real life possibility for NFTs. There's ton of tons of contractual possibilities for NFTs. And then clearly there's there's big implications for artists as well. And then, I, I, and then within that, I think there's layers. One is artists who are just trying to make some money and um, maybe there's no utility to what their NFTs are. And then there's these very deep uh, NFTs that have real world utility or have uh, like metaverse type of utility. And those are the things that will be uh, really successful. And then I think the other one that's going to be successful and is really successful right now are the NBA top shots of the world, right? This Dapper Labs group out of Vancouver, which I think is a Muslim founder, at the, the top of it, they're to join any of their NFT projects. Like, you know, now they have NFL all day. They just launched one with the UFC. They have a La Liga NFT. They have one coming out with Polo, uh, or sorry, uh, cricket this week. And then NBA as an example. Cause I think the biggest, the biggest hurdle to the NFT space is actually in the very weird process of attempting to buy an NFT with ETH, right? With, 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 with Ethereum. And I think that that's where the process to entry for most normal people, where they get stuck. Whereas if you can pay with fiat currency to buy an NFT and there's a gamification involved in it, or you're buying it, people have been buying things for video games for years like billions and billions of dollars for products within video games. So why would it be surprising that NFTs would be another layer? And then I think another part of it is also the democratization of collectibles, right? Whereas before 
you used to have to like a it would take a baseball trading company to come in have a license deal with major league baseball etc to make printed cards well now that you're not printing anything that's access that's accessible to all artists so very multi-layered yeah yeah so and nft is 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 quite like um insanely deep right because initially when i when i first kind of looked at it i'm seeing these kind of like you know these pixel art kind of nfts going quite viral and you know apes and all this kind of funky business going on um and, and maybe just like a rewind for um for, for listeners that may not be familiar with what the term nft means it means non-fungible token um and the idea is is that if you own an nft you own like an original piece of of thing whatever that thing may be so that thing could be art um as 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 dustin mentioned but it can also serve a function so for example one uh some of the most popular nft projects are uh, essentially building blocks so a building block uh, can have a function for example it could be water it could be gas it could be air in this kind of virtual space and those nfts could be you know you you could buy a hundred blocks in a building for example and that building has its own function so now you partly own let's say some of this building space in the metaverse that can generate actual value whether it's you being used by brands organizations artists whoever um so it's it's a completely like different recipe of 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 doing things but also i think what's what's really important um about nfts is the idea of ownership and originality which is like built into the kind of uh, the core kind of foundation of it which is why it's attracting artists so much who would often you know you can you can publish some artwork online and minutes later it can be downloaded as a jpeg or a png whatever and it's being reshared and you know anyone can claim to own it and have their profile picture whereas an nft essentially assigns that kind of ownership to to that person and of course someone can still kind of copy and paste and take a screenshot whatever it is um, but it doesn't change the fact that the the real ownership is the real ownership um one of the um interesting things dustin for me is is getting to terms with i mean and and this is kind of like true for anything but like the value being assigned to things i think that's what's throwing off a lot of people right now right where you know in 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 this real world um obviously you know um a car has a set value right like a, you know a, a 2005 honda civic for example has like a set market value or range that it falls within right um whereas what we're seeing here in 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 this new kind of realm is things that seemingly don't that don't actually have a value have like a crazy number attached to them right so now we've got these um gorilla ape uh, nfts and and all sorts of animal nfts going on um and there's like a thousand of them and and they're like a limited thousand what do you think is driving the value for these things what what's making these things valuable to people well it's scarcity primarily right and that's why the things that have like one of ones and if you think about it it's like old school i think baseball cards basketball cards football cards are a great example of it right when i was i'm old enough that I grew up in that world right I remember my father I wanted a pair of Jordans uh I grew up in the 90s and to age myself right I wanted a, I think there were Jordan 3s that's how old I am and uh believe it or not and and I and I wanted it and my dad was like no way that's insane but I had been buying baseball cards little by little and so I was able to save up enough money through selling flipping a bunch of baseball cards to then go uh buy my first pair of Jordans right but similarly like the same world the big the big disruption here 
is the rarity because those baseball cards, the ones that are still worth money are the ones that weren't printed in mass. Whereas when baseball cards, basketball cards got really popular, they were printing, you know, a hundred thousand cases a year of those things because they were just selling them at Walmart and selling them at wherever, you know, whatever big store you could buy it at. And so what gives the things value now is the rarity of them. So if you say, like a great uh, project that we're featuring on our global Muslim um, startup list is the women in um, what's it called? Sorry, the uh, women in um, I want to get it right. The Women Rise, right? Uh, women Rise is a really amazing project founded by uh, Muslim sister Maliha Abadi. She's based in London, and they've already they had a rarity of the basically she created all these drawings of women and then within the nfts there were one of one nfts that you could get right so of, of famous women activists throughout history like malala you know uh, ruth bader ginsburg there were one of ones and those one of ones are worth like tens of thousands of dollars or whatever right and she's made she already she sold out of her collection within two months and she made six million dollars selling NFTs. And so that's one of the amazing things about it as well is like, if you think about it, this is an artist, a graphic designer who was probably sitting there struggling to make money for years, like most graphic designers, most artists, right? Maybe they're making, you know, 50, 60 max, you know, 100, $150, $200,000 a year. And then all of a sudden she makes upwards of $6 million in, in two months. And she's able to, and she's giving like 10% of, of that pro, of the profits to charity. But, uh, but I think again, the, the, but the basketball cards analogy to go deeper is a really great, is the, is a great example of, of why this stuff is valuable. The problem with the card industry today, even though it's worth more than it's ever been like to collect basketball cards, baseball cards is worth some of these things. Like they're, they're LeBron James cards that are worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Right. But the problem with the basketball card is you get it. And the thing, like in the printing itself, the printing can be messed up. Then you take it out of the pack and you, and you could mess it up in handling the card. And then to get it graded, you have to put it in a sleeve, mail it off somewhere else in the, in the world with the possibility of it getting lost or stolen. Then that entity grades it, sends it back to you, and its value is based on the grade you, they, that they gave you. That process can take three, mm -hmm. three to five months. Whereas if you're buying uh, a video moment on NBA Top Shot, they'll, you know, they'll tell you, you, you got, you know, number two out of 90 of this video moment. And there'll only be 90 of these uh, NFTs printed ever. And you're not, and, and the value of it is based on you never having to touch it. It's all within digital space. And in many ways, it's like, it's a form of, of currency and, and like just high net, you know, it's a, it's a values, uh, high value asset at this point. Right. And so, but it's an example of how the, the baseball basketball card got industry got disrupted completely by this overnight because of the mundane nature of collecting these things. Right. And, the, and I think that the same thing will happen to where NFTs are right now, because to buy an NFT today, you have to, A, you have to figure out what project you want to buy and what project you think will actually grow. Then you have to go on that website and mint it. 
you have to put Ethereum or Solana in a wallet. Then you have to connect that wallet to the website, which is a very somewhat of a complex process that you're buying it at. And then at the very end, there are these gas fees where you may not even know how much the gas fees are to buy the thing. Like I was trying to buy the Adidas um, NFT because these corporate NFTs are doing really, really well. And I went in to buy it and I had about $900 in ETH in my wallet. And then the full price for something that was supposed to cost $800 was $1,500, almost twice the price uh, with the gas. But then of course the thing shot, the thing mooned right away and was worth almost $3,000 as soon as it was printed. But, but the mundane nature of like, of printing that, the complex nature of doing that, I think that's where NFTs are going to be stuck right now. And it's the one, it's the organizations and the groups who will create workarounds for that. And some real world experiences tied to them are the ones that will, will go ahead. And the Adidas one is a good example of that because not only did you get the Adidas NFT, but there were four different products that you got with that they're releasing throughout a year also. And so like with each product drop that you're sent, if you own the NFT, the NFT loses some value because you will have taken one of those four products. Whereas if you don't take any of the products, the NFT is still worth what it's worth, right? So it's the NFT tied to something in the real world. What's fascinating is that there's obviously a growing population of people who are prepared to invest money into these projects. That's what's kind of like throwing me off a little bit, right? Like, isn't it's like, fine, there's value there, but there's always been value. There's, I mean, there's always been rare things, right? There's always been diamonds, for example. There's always been gold. There's always been, um, you know, like you said, even baseball cards, for example, right? Um, what do you think is the shift that it's that's happened in the last like few years for people to make this leap into investing serious amounts of, of money. Like you just said, for example, $1,500 for an Adidas NFT. What's happened in people's minds for people to now make this jump and start thinking, okay, I'm going to purchase something which is still ultimately just like a digital thing, right? It's still ultimately, you know, at, at worst it's bragging rights, right? Mm -hmm. So what's, what's, what do you think created the demand for this? Well, I would say, A, it's the growth of crypto and people having people, people who have cryptocurrency and invested early in cryptocurrency and made a bunch of money last year and were really, you know, ahead in their investments. That's what I think drove some of it initially. And then there's also just there's these entire investment funds just focused on Web3, right? And we're only talking about one small part of this, right? If you if you think about Web3 and what the metaverse is, it's it's virtual reality, it's augmented reality, it's NFTs, it's cryptocurrency, it's blockchain. And then there's the piece of it that I'm really interested in as a creative as well, which is which is virtual production components. So like if you've seen The Mandalorian, The Mandalorian is, is one of the first examples uh, in the film, The Lion King, the, the live action version of The Lion King, quote, live action version of The Lion King, were filmed on these virtual sets, right? Where you're actually, those they're not on location, they're shooting on sound stages, but the entire locations are on these like super high resolution um, screens behind them. Screens, uh, yeah, yeah. and and all of this. So, yeah. So, 
Anyway, sorry, I got distracted. One of the kids tried to come That's in. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's um, fine. So, as a as a Muslim artist um, and and someone who you know you collaborate with artists and you kind of uh, talk to them and stuff, how do you see Muslims being able to maximize the the benefit of of this new space and this new era, almost of of metaverse and NFTs? Well, I think it's just the. And it's bigger than that too, right? I think there's real world opportunities as well um, because like in the US, you know, I know you live in uh, California now, right? And, and, and one of the things, if you drive around this part of the world, which me and my family did uh, to go visit family in Denver, we drove and in New Mexico and in Denver now and in Las Vegas, there's this entity called Meow Wolf, right? And Meow Wolf is this creative, interactive, art museum space and then there's all these pop-ups happening all over right and so there's just art happening everywhere and art is happening in a way where it wasn't before i think the accessibility uh of production is is what blew this thing up right the ease of creating things on you on your phone films on your phone like really high quality you can get a cinematic quality camera for a thousand dollars right now right you have the right team together you can make a film um you can create a pop-up you can create you can take over a building and create an entire immersive uh experience then let alone like everything happening in the digital space and the big thing that i'm excited about nfts if it keeps going is i think that it'll fund even more art right is it's the type of thing where the if you know anything about venture capital is that or being early in a company what that does being early in a company does is if you get an exit that whole group of early founders and early employees at a company turns around and is able to invest and spend their money in the way in the projects that they're already passionate about. So if you have artists making a bunch of money, then we're inevitably only going to get more art. And so to me, that's a really great thing. And I think, you know, the world is changing as well with funding towards Muslim artists and art projects and, and we just have, and there's so much need, right? There's, we need Muslim museums, Islamic museums. We need um, film festivals, uh, everything, right? That that are about us being our full selves and also not within the confines and context of what Western liberalism says we should be. Right now, um, like, for example, I've been uh, kind of, keeping a close eye to the, the Muslim NFT space and stuff. Um, let's call it Islamic art or Islamic NFT art, right? I'm not currently seeing um, the same kind of high value uh, projects that may exist, for example, like, you know, like the, the, the apes, for example, the Board Apes Club and stuff, right? Um, that doesn't seem to be happening just yet. Um, and I wonder what you think the reason for that is and, and what Muslims as a wider community need to do to uh, to be able to kind of increase these projects' values, right? Um, and just to kind of like uh, add one more thing to that as well. In my experience so far, in my research kind of looking at these NFT projects, there seems to be a very strong and, and, and uh, distinctive community that's built around NFT projects. 
So it's not the case that, you know, for example, just some dude who's just pumping out NFTs and, and they're going they're going for millions. It's only really the ones that have built a community and identity around their art, even pre-NFT days, um, that are kind of getting that maximum value. How do Muslim artists create that for themselves in order for their projects to kind of be successful? Well, and you asked me about value, right? A lot of the value for these projects is also just around hype. So like Steph Curry wears, uh, what do they have now? It's like the something ape basketball league that's not even the board apes. It's a different type of ape mm. that's this virtual basketball league they're creating. He wears a, a you know hoodie after a game and he's interviewed in it. And all of a sudden, the price of those things goes crazy, right? So, so much of the value is also just hype. So mm. who would be the Muslim artist that would that could create that type of hype? If you think about it, we have famous artists and we have mostly famous artists who are actors and actresses at this point, some influencers. But if you think of like pure artists, I have a hard time thinking of famous living Muslim mm. artists, right? The most famous, one of the most famous Muslim artists in the world is probably El Cid. If El Cid did an NFT project, there would be a ton of hype around it because it's El Cid. And maybe he's thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. But how would it, but would it have the level of hype that some of these other projects have? And again, I think it, it's the issue of utility. How do you create something that's really unique that has either virtual utility or real world utility? And if you don't have those things, like you said, and you don't create a community, and that's why Women Rise did so well is because they created this really strong Discord community, but then they got the hype. So they mm-hmm. they got to a certain point, they funded, like they said they were going to, at a certain point, they were going to give like 7% of the project to the Malala Foundation. They did that, right? You make a huge donation to something like the Malala Foundation, you're going to get press attention. Yeah. So the press attention leads to celebrities tweeting it and whatever else, and then the project closes within two weeks because it blows up. So it's all about community and then hype and then and then the piece the missing piece that so many artists and even digital strategists don't think of is there's a very real reality to pub, to PR. You have to know how to play the PR game well and to get press outside of social media about your work. And if you do that, then stuff blows up. I feel like there's a lot of uh, ground laying and infrastructure that needs to be done um, within the Muslim community because obviously it's happening within the tech space. It's happening within the kind of more, um, if, uh, I don't like using the term mainstream, but you know, like mainstream artists and designers and so on and so forth and fashion fashion influencers and so on and so forth that are able to obviously have and build an identity around that. And there's a, you know, a community that's consuming their content, right? Whereas, for example, with Muslims, I don't feel like we've got that demand just yet. And I think that's a demand that needs to be kind of engineered in a way um, to tell Muslims that, look, this is potentially a way to change the future for Muslims by kind of bringing this economy away from like dollars and pounds and into Ethereum and Bitcoin and all the other stuff that will truly actually uh, liberate our projects, right? And allow us to fund things in more efficient and effective ways, uh, minus gas fees. Um, <clears throat> So I feel like at first we need to kind of obviously develop that kind of community understanding and awareness, which is why like I've I've been dedicating, I think three podcasts now we've discussed NFTs and the metaverse and all this kind of stuff, because it's a reality that's dawning on us. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we need to kind of move fast. And I feel like as Muslims, we're always late to the party, right. We always turn up like, you know, 20 years late 
to to a new platform, new medium, and say, "Hey guys, like here's, here's a halal Muslim version of it." Mm-hmm. I feel like that's different this time. Um, I feel like, for example, Muslim, especially millennial Muslims, because we're so uh, you know, is are so close to the ground in general when it comes to tech and development um, that we're, we're we're picking this up. But essentially, where the bulk of the money still lies is in the elder generation. Um, who, the, the ones that are still funding the mosques being built, the ones that are still funding projects, and we the, the same uncles and aunties that we go to whenever we need, you know, ten thousand things printed. You know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I feel like they themselves also need the education and, and, and kind of onboarding into this new paradigm, so that they're the ones that can then successfully pass that wealth downwards to to the future generation of decentralized Muslims. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think that, and again, the issue is accessibility, right? It's the, that there's debates about crypto within the Muslim community. So therefore, it's not as widely spread as it is maybe in some other communities, even amongst the youth. And then there's debates about art within the Muslim community itself, right? And types of art. That's true. And so, yeah, true. And so when you add, when there's iktilaf, when there's difference of opinion on issues amongst the Muslims, it's always going to be a bit more difficult to work on some of these things. And so, and that's, and that's why I think what, what, what would be most successful would also be projects that don't just take the Muslim market into account, right? That you're building things for broader consumers as well. Like I think that Muslims were interested in Muslim things, but not exclusively, right? We're also interested in, the broader issues of art and humanity and things like that. And so, so I think that they're the most successful artists, like the, even like women rise as an example. Yeah. There were like hijabis within that art set, but it wasn't only hijabis. It it wasn't only Muslim women. It was like women of color focused women of color focused discord channel where you're like championing women being involved in it. And so I think it's, it's the discord, but it's the, it's also whoever has the right project, right? The, the, whoever has the, the, whoever has the right roadmap and something that's deeper, right? That's the issue, right? Right now, all I'm seeing, I'm seeing individual artists sell their art. I'm seeing some charity organizations trying to make some money off of NFTs, but there's no like real roadmap there as to like a project right as to whereas if you if you study what they did with women rise she had a whole roadmap she had a roadmap with like i said charity will be given when we sell this many and then this many and then this and then she was expecting that thing to go on for like a year it looked like and then the whole thing sold out in two months and so she she accomplished her entire roadmap and then now she has to write a roadmap for part two right a uh, second thing that I think needs to be developed, and I think you just you just touched on it as well, and and I think this will play like a very critical role for Muslims to be persuaded to um, start spending their money in this way, is linking it to charities because obviously we know that across the board in America and Europe and other places that Muslims uh, compared to the rest of the population are much more generous when it comes to giving charity. Right. Um, ultimately, because it comes down to the fact that it's part of our faith to give charity. And I think that combining NFT projects with uh, being able to support charitable uh, work and, and, and Muslims around the world would be a huge, huge, huge 
way of opening that door for people to be like, okay, yes, it's complicated downloading MetaMask and setting up my Bitcoin wallets and all this stuff, right? But it'll be worth it in the end knowing that, okay, this money is not only going to charities, but that money has the potential of increasing in value uh, for those charities. And it has like a long-term benefit. And each time that this NFT is traded, potentially a cut will be going to... Um, uh, you know, a, a charitable cause. Um, and I guess one of the gaps that also needs to be filled is uh, Muslim charities, uh, you know, being able to now enter this space of cryptocurrency and DeFi and being able to kind of set these systems up in place mm. where they're able to be recipients of, of, of charitable funds, right? And I don't think there is anyone out there doing that at the moment. They might probably be working on it. Um, and I'll be sure to have some conversations with, uh, our own brand partners at our charities and asking them, look, this is something you guys need to look into. But it's all very new at the moment. And and I think that's what's making people a bit kind of hesitant. My only fear is um, how slow we are to kind of um, uh, adopt this technology. I feel like the, the the number of years that we're slow to pick it up is, is you know, how much we'll be behind as a community in influencing this kind of new new era of of the world you know does that make sense yeah totally but i think at the same time like the to go back to this uh you know the global muslim um most innovative 100 most innovative companies list so we have a section called blockchain and metaverse startups and so to give credit where credit's due there are a number of companies in the space already led by muslims who are trying to build in the space right now Many of them need funding, but many of them already have funding in place. So let me just let me just talk about a couple of them real quick because I think it's a great example. So there's Clever Harvest, which is between works between California and Tunisia, and it started as an olive oil project. But they have a brilliant technologist behind the project uh, named Daniel Afzal with their their co-founder Soraya Hosni, a good friend of mine who is, lives in Tunisia with her husband Mark Gonzalez. Shout out to Mark Gonzalez and the, everyone there. Um, but anyway, he, they started with focusing on supply chain with food and then putting, uh, blockchain technology related to, to supply chain. So that's huge, right? Just, and it's an example of, of showing why, where, uh, and they're looking specifically at the, these food stuffs that have the most need traceability, right? So olive oil, coffee, cacao and avocado industries are where they're starting using blockchain technology. Then of course we mentioned women women rise, then there's Fonun based between uh, Dubai and the UK founded by Shah Sheikh and Mohammed Imran. Oh, oh and to go back sorry real quick on uh, Clever Harvest, they already closed a a pre-seed deal and now they're raising a seed, a multi-million dollar seed. So mashallah, uh, women rise raised 6 million dollars through NFTs unless they didn't cash it out and the ETH went way down last week, right? Uh, Fanoon is raising a pre-seed, but they're actually trying to build a faith-inspired NFT marketplace. Uh, the key there is going to be obviously the projects that, that are behind it. Then there's uh, Marhaba DeFi, which is based in Sydney. And they've, they've raised a bunch of money um, and they have their own coin. Uh, and they're... Marhaba is focused on the Islamic finance liquidity pool uh, and and they're trying to create DeFi technology related to that. And then Shisha, Shisha Finance is focused on DeFi, uh, specifically in the Arab world. And they've already raised $9.4 million as a seed. 
And so those are the companies that just the companies we featured. And then there's, like I said, all these different uh, projects with artists. And so you have uh, things like Huspala, right? Huspala has like an NFT project with thousands of Huspalas, you know, the, you know, the famous Russian. The famous, the only one and only Huspala. Yeah, the one and only Huspala at this point. <laughs> Uh, no, no Hezbollah, right? We've moved past our political stage and everything is influencers now. Uh, anyway, so Hezbollah has a project and he has a really, I'm on, I'm on their discord. <laughs> so, and that's the big thing. Discord is just diving into discord is super interesting as well. And if you want to find out about NFT projects, you need to go into the discord, see how active the communities are. And that'll show you why, you know, as an example, we don't have, our projects in place yet. We don't have super active discords uh, and you can tell. And when we, when we, when we see that, then, you know, a project will pop because it has enough people behind it. And how big are these discord servers? The ones that are popping? I mean, like the NBA top shot one is hundreds of uh, like a hundred thousand. Right. And so, but that's a huge one. Um, they have an NFL project that's not nearly as big. It's like uh, seven thousand. But like even women, right? Women, there is, and then there's another one we mentioned. But there's a group called the Digital Sisterhood who have a podcast. I don't know if you know them. I think they're UK based. But um, they're launching an NFT project. They started originally as a podcast and they have a pretty active discord but right now there's only like 20 people on it who are active so maybe not as active as i thought but but growing i'm trying to find the women women rise one women rise have 400 people who are holding women rise that are part of the discord so that means 400 people just holding the art, let alone mm. other people who are in it, and those are people holding that. Those are people holding it, not selling it. So, okay, cool. Because I think I think what's quite important here, and I'm sorry, listeners, if you're listening to this podcast and you're completely confused as to what we're talking about, and I'm hoping that you know um, a lot of this makes sense. And if it doesn't, please just like Google these terms that we're talking about because. Um, and and I say this, like, my wife thinks I'm going crazy, by the way. She thinks, like, you know, Hezzy, why are you so worried about all this stuff? It's not really going to happen. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> I need to buy an Oculus Quest. I need to now get used to the idea that people are going to be wearing goggles. And as a content creator, I now need to start creating content in this virtual space. That's just, like, a reality that I have to deal with, right? Yes, it would be ideal just to keep making websites in WordPress for the rest of my life and, and only using Photoshop. But, no, the technology is evolving. Uh, culture is evolving. And of course, we need to kind of adapt with the time and especially for the sake of our children, right? Like we need to be pioneers in this space in order for our children to have a secure future in it. Otherwise, we're going to be leaving it to people with ill intentions um, that can very easily now capture our children's imagination and, and thought process and everything because the power of virtual reality is going to be you know, that much more intense than, than what phones are doing right now. Um, and there's no escaping that, unfortunately. It would be nice to just live in a village and just say, hey, I'm done with this stuff. I'm just going to look at a tree all day. Um, and, and so the reason why, like, um, 
you know, it's, it's important for me to keep having these conversations on uh, this podcast now is really, I'm seeing it as my own kind of like personal mission almost to try and, you know, create more content and conversations about this, start exploring ideas um, with people like yourselves who I know are actively involved and, and, and partaking in these conversations because that's how we're all going to learn and that's how we're all going to benefit. Um, Dustin, I know you, you're, you're quite busy at the moment because you've got the launch of um, this uh, Global Muslim Startups List 2022 um, and you're gonna, you've got a phone call in 10 minutes. So just before you go, um, I thought it'd be cool for you to kind of share a little bit more information with our listeners as to what that is uh, what inspired the project, uh, what they can expect in the next couple of weeks or months? Sure. So the, the big thing for us is really about uh, building connections with and, and an ecosystem for Muslim entrepreneurs the same way I've done that work for a long time for Muslim activists. We have to, we have to build the space ourselves. And, and so what we, we launched the first list in 2015. We featured 50 companies. The second list in 2016, where we featured 50 companies, and then the third list in 2017 was focused on apps. So in total, we featured about 125 companies. And what's really amazing is those set of companies were groups like LaunchGood, uh, you know, Muslim Vibe, uh, Noor Kids, and some of those com companies like LaunchGood now have 100 employees around the world. Some of these companies have, have made millions and millions of dollars and raised tens of millions of dollars and venture capital money. But what's even more amazing now is that in 2022, we created this list with 100 companies all around the world. And these companies have raised collectively closer to $300 million uh, just in venture capital money, let alone in philanthropic funds. And so it shows the growth of the space. It shows the maturity of the space. Even in, the, in those earlier lists, there was no real Islamic fintech as an example. Fintech in 2015 and 2016, like digital banking, neo banking, you know, robo advising, robo uh, investing, all this stuff was happening already, and it wasn't happening happening for Muslims. And to your point, many years later, here come the Muslims, and now on this list, I think we have ten digital banks all around the world, like two in the United States, one in Canada, a couple in, in Europe, like Insha, which is based in uh, in Berlin. There's a couple like. Like Cardus is a equity crowdfunding platform based in the UK. So there's just so many really amazing companies doing really cool work. Uh, of course, the problem with banking is the banking system itself. Um, and and then and then you know we're very interested. And part of the reason I'm interested in this work is I'm also very interested in narrative change and how we change the story about Muslims, how we quit being reactionary in our storytelling, how we tell stories that are looking towards the future. And I think that these companies are a great uh, example of that. And so the beginning of the list is actually um, media companies. And part of the reason for that is our lead sponsor was a ba group based in Los Angeles called Us Hub, but also because that's one of my passions and I work in media production as well. And, um, and I think it's where we need the most change, right? Like I have four young girls and seeing the type of content that they're consuming all the time, we have to create high quality content, not to say it's all bad or anything like that. Right. I wouldn't, wouldn't talk bad ab about, about them. It's the issue of, do we understand all the messages that are built into even some of the children's content? Right. And not talking, mm -hmm. not talking about Fred Rogers and Daniel Tiger and these beautiful examples of values-based storytelling that still exist in some places. 
talking about some of the more negative stuff. But anyway, so there's a really amazing group of companies like True and Living, founded by the amazing poet Amir Suleiman, who has a couple of TV shows that he's working on and films. We talk about Khabib and kind of the global empire that Khabib is building through media and sports mm. um, and the set of companies. Like he just bought a he just bought a MMA organization called Eagles FC that was based, I think, in Uzbekistan. And then he globalized it and is having his first event in the U.S. at the end of this month, right, um, while building a school in the UAE that teaches for underrepresented kids, that teaches them fo- how to play football and how, you know, global football, not American football, and, and uh, MMA, while also giving them a really quality education. We have groups like Muslim Casting that are just focused on helping Muslims uh, connect to casting opportunities so that we have actual good representation. Uh, like Malala Yousafzai has a, her own production company and has a deal with Apple Plus for children's content and animation and dramas and documentaries. Um, left-handed, right? Riz Ahmed's production company. So many amazing, amazing companies, right? And so that's why we do it mm-hmm. is to, is to, is it's one thing we'll see, we'll see an article about one of these companies and we're like, oh, SpotAllah, that's nice that, you know, this person's doing that or, or whatever. And then you see it as a collective and it gives us real hope, right? Is like, how do we cre- see hope? in the future uh, that we're building together. And so even like the metaverse stuff we were just talking about, we could have said, oh, there's no hope. Uh, no one's doing it. But it, like I was able to say right in the middle of the conversation, no, here's five startups that already have major investments that are, that are, that are doing it. And even, even like some of the research, like this week, I found a company that wasn't going to be included. That's actually uh, the model Bella Hadid's company, who's been more public recently about her kind of Muslimness and, their Palestinian background. And I know her father is a, you know, billionaire uh, investor in, in Los Angeles. And so she created this, this drink company called Ken Euphorics and she's been marketing it, talking about um, kind of what alcohol did to her life and now trying to being sober for almost a year now and, and what it means to create a, a drink that's non-alcoholic that can, for those people who are dealing with alcohol addiction, and want to stop uh, that can be a replacement for them. And, and, you know, as someone who converted to Islam, definitely had a, a similar journey. And I think so many of it, and even people born Muslim have that journey today. So, so that's why we tried, we include social impact companies, spiritual impact companies, and, uh, and companies, you know, like this within food and beverage. There's even a, the most hilarious one was there was this Muslim company, this Muslim guy on Shark Tank, uh, he has a he has a company called Snacklands, and he has this great line on, on Shark Tank where he says, "I'm a Muslim American pitching a vegan pork rind on Shark Tank." Right? His company he created a vegan pork rind because he wanted uh, to eat to eat pork rinds, and he couldn't as a Muslim. <laughs> and and then he got a deal with Mark Cuban. I'm like, that's hilarious, right? Uh, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So, mashallah. So that's so there is like, definitely there is definitely like this this boom that I'm seeing um over the last like few years of of Muslim startups, but also these Muslim startups becoming a lot more sophisticated, not just slapping the Muslim label in front of something and saying, Hey, look, here's the Muslim version of it. Um I, I especially like what's happening in the fintech space. And I've definitely been seeing a lot more kind of movement happening in this kind of like blockchain space as well, right? Um and for example, um 
I think it's called Bitfinex or something like this. I can't remember the exact name, but it's it's run by a Muslim brother from London. Um, and then they recently got like, a, I think a serious funding of like $10 million or something like that. And I'm seeing a lot of this kind of like inspiring movement take place. And, you know, it's something that I'm so kind of keen to just keep like exploring and finding out more and more about. So that's why I'm really looking forward to uh, when you do publish this article with the the list for 2022. Um, and, and yeah, I can't, you know, that'll be amazing to just kind of go through each one of those uh, lists and, and see um, what's what's taking place around the world. It's just a very inspiring time at the moment. Yeah, totally. And it, and it's also super interesting that a lot of the like innovative startup stuff is happening in the US and the UK and um, right. It's still happening globally. There's a lot of companies from Southeast Asia, some companies from Istanbul in the Middle East. And of course, with language stuff, maybe some of those things aren't accessible to us mm -hmm. or we don't have the right networks, but it just shows that, you know, you can build a company like LaunchGood for a global Muslim audience today and work wherever you want in the world um, to reach that audience, right? And so, yeah, inshallah, man. Super inspiring stuff. And uh, thank you for having me. And, the, you know, everybody, good luck with the NFT game. Like I said, I think the, the big change, <laughs> the hard question when so many people involved in it were big crypto heads is going to be what's more important? crypto or nfts because mm. i don't know that they'll grow together and one is probably bigger than the other and i don't think it's crypto <laughs> so so yeah that's a that's a whole other conversation but that's a whole other conversation indeed um i'll be working on an nft project this year inshallah, inshallah. um just uh, out of creative curiosity more than anything um and inshallah you'll be someone that i'll be in touch with a lot to discuss updates and yeah. maybe uh, i'll invite you to the discord server and yeah, <laughs> we course. can start building something there of course uh but no, it's been a pleasure speaking to you dustin um we're, we're due to speak soon again uh personally and, and i can't wait to have more conversations with you you're in san diego i'm in the middle of a desert uh but inshallah <laughs> we can definitely touch base in <laughs> we can touch base in person and have a more uh, deeper conversation that's about all of this that's stuff. the only affordable place to live in california is deep within uh, the desert you have to get listen, 40 I, miles from the ocean to even have a place <laughs> even even this place is, is getting getting expensive but uh no this place has its own unique charm man like the 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 desert the joshua trees and the yeah, and the mountain views it's a uh, alhamdulillah it's, it's a beautiful space all right man yeah beautiful We'll have, to, we'll have to see each other soon, inshallah. Thank you for having me. For sure, for sure. Take right. care. Asalaamu Alaikum. That was our conversation with Dustin. I hope you guys found it beneficial and informative. And again, I apologize in advance if someone's listening to this podcast and has no idea what we're talking about. Uh, but I do definitely recommend that everyone does a little bit of research on these terms, NFT, Metaverse, Blockchain, Crypto, all this stuff. Um, all the information is pretty much out there available. We just need to run a quick Google search and, and essentially find an article or a video that uh, attracts you the most and start learning about these things. Um, I found it quite uh, inspiring to see Dustin's confidence in the future for Muslim creatives. Uh, he's definitely someone who has his air close to the ground and knows the ins and outs of what people are working on and the different projects that are taking place at the moment so it's very very encouraging to uh, speak to him and know that there's there's people working on these things right um he is going to be release, releasing releasing he's going to be releasing a report from the center for global muslim life um, looking at the top muslim startups of 2022 to keep an eye on 
uh, when that's available uh, be sure to check it out um, the best way to do that would be visiting the website globalmuslimlife.com follow them on social media and then as soon as the report is published which at the time i'm going to release this episode probably will be That's it from us. Uh, from us, um, I just wanted to uh, let you guys know about a project that we'll be working on this year. Uh, My Muslim Family. Uh, I think I've brought it up in previous episodes. Uh, that's going to be starting fairly soon, and this is a project that's going to be aimed at Muslim parents uh, looking at the issues of raising a Muslim family that's you know got a strong Muslim identity and providing practical solutions to the modern challenges that Muslim parents are facing. So I would like you to please check it out. Go to mymuslimfamily.org. We have a landing page up at the moment where you can join our mailing list. And once you join that mailing list, you can then download our presentation, which kind of gives a full kind of deep dive uh, into the project. Um, And you will also start getting updates from us as to when we're going to slowly, slowly release little things. So we're going to be starting with a podcast, articles, so on and so forth. Anyways, if you've made it this far into the podcast, thank you a bunch. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, leave us a comment underneath. Let us know how what you thought of the podcast. If you have any questions about NFTs, and we'll be uh, happy to uh, respond and help you with any questions. That's it from me, guys. Barakalafik. See you next week, or maybe more than a few weeks, depending on our video editor's ability to edit this podcast in time. Salam. <laughs>